Well, hey, we are continuing our series that we just started last week called Shaped by the Gospel on issues shaping culture. And when we get right down to it, we're being formed by the word or the world. We are being shaped by the culture or the gospel. Now, being formed by the word and not the world is kind of easier said than done, right? Being shaped by the gospel more than the culture while living in a particular culture in the world isn't easy. In fact, it's downright complicated. Right? Paraphrasing the words of Jesus in, in John 17, we are to be in the world but not of the world. And yet, while we're not of this world, we are sent into the world on mission for gospel advance through disciple making. And so I'm convinced that there are a few issues in our moment that feel particularly complicated for Christians, right, to live for Jesus in here and now. And that's why we're addressing them in this series. It's it's risky. We're dipping our toe in the very issues that are most contentious right now, seeking to rediscover a clear and compelling vision of what it means to follow Jesus when it comes to race and materialism and sexuality and so on. Today, I'm preaching on politics. What could go wrong? <laughs> Uh, so it's kind of like, don't talk about these things at the dinner table. Don't talk about sex, religion, or politics. Well, we're talking about all of those things in uh, the sermon series, sex, money, religion, politics, all of that stuff. And oftentimes we take that same approach to the church as well and think, well, the church shouldn't talk about money or sex or politics or race. Uh, but the challenge with that, the pushback I would bring to that is that where the church is silent, uh, we run the risk of being shaped not by the gospel, but by the culture. Not by the word, but the world. Not only that, the Bible isn't silent about race and sexuality and money and politics. And so as a pastor, I'm tasked with preaching the whole counsel of God. Therefore, we will touch on these things in the church. So as we start to talk about politics together today, let me just give some introductory clarifying comments. First, I'm intentionally preaching on politics when we're not in an election season. Our municipality, province, or federal, no elections going on right now. That's intentional. I do get emails in the lead up to every election season from people in our church suggesting I preach on politics, sometimes even saying, because then we can ensure that certain people are elevated and all of that kind of stuff, which leads me to another clarifying comment, and this may disappoint some of you, but I am not going to ever, I don't think, use the pulpit and use my platform to endorse a specific candidate or political party. That's not my goal. So what is my goal? Here's my goal. My goal is to help form the kind of disciples who know and love God, understand the grand storyline of the Bible, the objective of the Christian life, and can navigate the complexity of what it means to live as Jesus followers in every area of life including civic engagement. That's my goal. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Jeremiah 29? I've got it open. It's about halfway into the Bible. Keep going past the Psalms and Isaiah. You're going to get to Jeremiah. And we are uh, 
looking at chapter 29. Now, Jeremiah has spent the first 28 chapters really bringing warnings of judgment to the people of Judah. He has been warning them, turn back to God. And they haven't heeded those warnings. And so now they've been sent into exile in Babylon. Now, Jeremiah 29 and some of the chapters that follow, he turns and starts to deliver some of the most wonderful promises in the whole Bible. You're probably familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And this statement comes in the midst of their exile in Babylon. And look what it says in verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. In 597 BC, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, ransacked their temple, ruined their economy, removed their leaders, and King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, carried the best and brightest of Jerusalem off to Babylon, including a young man named Babylon, uh, Daniel to Babylon, and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so a a, a parallel uh, book of the Bible at this time is the book of Daniel. Now, Babylon's a really interesting concept in the scriptures. In, in, in Revelation, we see Babylon referred to over and over and over again. And the book of Revelation refers to the kingdom of this world as Babylon. In other words, Babylon serves as an archetype in the Bible in fact, Rome is later referred to as Babylon, even though ancient Babylon had long since been destroyed by that point. Uh, fourth century North African theologian Augustine identified Babylon as the biblical symbol of the city of man in his book, The City of God. In the book, he described human history as a conflict between two great cities, the city of God and the city of man. So a helpful introductory question that we can ask ourselves here is, do we think we're living in Jerusalem or Babylon? The city of God or the city of man, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world? And the answer I believe is that Christians are like those in exile in Babylon. That's how we should see our position. And that has massive ramifications for us. Now, we get the word politics from the root word polis. Think of a metropolis. Metropolis. A polis is a, is a bound city surrounded by a wall. And politikos is the term by which those in the bound city commit to live together. Right? Mutual commitments of those who dwell in the bound city. That is a politikos. And so in that sense, what Jesus started, track with me here, is a political movement. The church. Jesus instituted the church. Well, what is the church? The church is a covenant people bound by their allegiance to Jesus and his love for them and that live by a radically different value system as a counter to Babylon. The politicos of the church is a multi-ethnic global people in the midst of various local political structures living by a higher politicos right in the midst of Babylon. 
Now we shouldn't expect heaven on earth, therefore, because we are exiles in Babylon. We shouldn't expect Christian values to permeate, permeate a secular culture like the one we live in in Canada. But we should understand that we're sent by God into the culture to make it more like heaven and the age to come. So look what God says to these exiles in verse 4 of Jeremiah 29. God said, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who sent them? God sent them. God sent them as exiles into Babylon, meaning the exiles were not captives ultimately in Babylon. They were missionaries. Do you realize that you have been sent here by God, Christian, to live out the values of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdom of man? You're a foreigner because heaven is your home and Jesus is your king, but he sent you here to this place at this time to be his emissary, to make this city a little more like the heavenly city. Let's read the text again, verse four, and then we'll keep reading. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Build houses and live in them, Jeremiah wrote. Now, this prophecy in Jeremiah 29 would have surprised these Israelite exiles in Babylon because the first 28 chapters are warnings to them to turn to God or face judgment. And then they do face judgment and they're dragged off into exile, into Babylon. And now they're getting a word from the prophet Jeremiah and they're likely expecting, okay, God is going to bring you back to your homeland now. Right? That's what they're expecting, that he would deliver them from Babylon ASAP. But what we actually see is his surprising plan for the redemption of the city meant building the city of God smack dab in the middle, middle of the city of man. And it still means that. We're called to build houses and engage. Don't live in monastic seclusion. Get involved in community development. These verses teach the importance of daily family life for the redemption of the post-Christian city. The construction of the house, the planting of the garden, and the raising of the family all build the city of God. The politicos of the church in the midst of Babylon is to have a way of life and permeate the culture in such a way that it leads to the flourishing of that place. Verse seven says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. This word welfare is shalom in the original language, which is a robust word for peace and wholeness and prosperity and completeness. And in this context, welfare means a contented state of general welfare. We are to seek the shalom of the city because its shalom is our shalom. Now, an important question <laughs> to ask at this point is, well, how do we do that? What does it mean to seek its welfare? 
Um, Larry Hurtado wrote a book called Destroyer of the Gods. And in it, he unpacks the early Christian distinctiveness in the Roman world. Right? The early church were viewed by Rome as a political threat. And that's why they were uh, persecuted so badly. And he argues that they were a unique kind of human community that defied categories and really still does to this day. And then uh, Hurtado unpacks the five distinctive elements that, yes, are five distinctives, but they also constitute a whole that we must see as well, which really was the early church's social vision. Why was the church seen as a political threat to Rome? Well, because of its social vision, which had five key elements. And here they are. The first is they were distinctively, distinctively uh, ethnic. Distinctively, I should say, multi-ethnic. And they celebrated that. They celebrated the multi-ethnic nature of the church. See, here's the thing. In the ancient world, you would, uh, you would um, be born into a particular place that had its particular gods, and it was, so it was very homogenous. Th- that was your religion. You were born into it, and it was your particular people who had that, those religious beliefs and gods. Christianity came along and said, from every tribe and tongue, Christians are to go to the nations and make disciples, and those who turn to Jesus become the family of God across social barriers, across uh, ethnic, racial boundaries and borders. We're all becoming a family. And so they celebrated the multi-ethnic nature of the church, and that was uh, category-defying. Secondly, um, they... Uh, highly, they were highly committed to caring for the poor and vulnerable. Care for the poor and the marginalized. Now, uh, based on Jesus' Good Samaritan parable in Luke 10, the, the early church shockingly embraced all who were in need. Uh, The Roman Emperor Julian famously remarked in a letter that the radical Christian practice of caring not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, was an indictment. And it was found by people in the ancient world both as attractive and offensive. They didn't just care for their own poor, they, they cared for all poor. And that was very distinctive and revolutionary and category defying. Third, Christians were non-retaliatory. They were marked by a commitment of forgiveness. They were a radical, radically forgiving people. This was one of the distinctive elements of the early church. The early Christians were notable in that if you attacked or killed them, they did not organize retaliation or get revenge. They were famous for experiencing death in arenas or by execution as they prayed for their persecutors. They were following the example of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and of their Lord Jesus on the cross. The Christian teaching on forgiveness and turning the other cheek created a community of peacemaking, reconciliation, and bridge building. 
The fourth element of this unique Christian community in the early centuries was that they were strongly and practically against abortion and infanticide. This was unique in its time. Christians were dead set against both abortion and infanticide, but not merely in principle. They found and took infants who were thrown out to die or to become harvested by slavers. The early church was pro-life, especially in the sense that they recognized no gradations of human value. In a tribalized, socially stratified, shame and honor culture, this was absolutely shocking. They were against abortion and infanticide. It was common in that day. It was normal practice to take your unwanted newborn and put that newborn on the trash heap to die or to be picked up by slavers who would raise them, sell them to be slaves or use them as slaves, oftentimes in the sex industry in the ancient world. Christians would come along because of Imago Dei, made in the image of God. We touched on this last week. That's why we care for the poor. It doesn't matter what their social status is. And it doesn't matter how young, vulnerable they are or how little they can contribute to society. They have worth and value and dignity and therefore had always been cared about by Christians. Fifth, Christians had a revolutionary sexual ethic. We will talk more about this in a couple weeks, but here's the deal. In, in the ancient world, in the Roman world, sex was merely an appetite. Its purpose was to serve the social order. Married women could not have sex with anyone but their husbands, but their husbands could have sex with anyone they wanted, male or female. Uh, this was a common practice in, in ancient Rome, just so long as that individual was a, of a lower social status than them. So think with me then, who had the most power in that society? And who, who could fulfill their sexual appetites pretty much any way they wanted to? Wealthy men, men of great status. Some things haven't changed very much in thousands of years. But what Christianity did is Christianity detached sex and marriage from the social order and connected it to the cosmic, to God's saving love and redemption, seeing sex to be bound up in the covenant love of Christ toward his church, this exclusive nature of sexuality to be found like that. It's no wonder that Christianity thrived in those early centuries, most dominantly in the context of women coming to faith because it was this great equalizer and this was radically different at that time. Look, the early and modern church affirm all of this. All that I've written on the whiteboard there, this is the church's social vision. It always has been as we submit to the authority of the Bible. Now, we're talking about politics today, so let me just take this a step further, though. In today's context, celebrating um, kind of celebration of, of kind of multi-ethnic uh, categories, uh, care for the poor and the marginalized, these are, in political systems in our context, viewed often as liberal. It is liberal to be seen as, as celebrating multi-ethnic diversity, 
and uh, care for the poor is often a dominant theme in kind of uh, more left-wing political parties. Well, being anti-abortion or pro-life and also having a conservative sexual ethic is, well, it's seen as politically conservative today. But like I said, these five elements, these five distinctives are meant to be taken as a whole. And actually, it's out of biblical conviction and historically what the Christian church has always been about that we as Christians actually are to care about all five. Now, interestingly, radical forgiveness <laughs> is uh, really exhibited by no political parties, left or right. And so, a couple more things just to say about that. Um, we can't let ourselves be, be pressured to care about two in the absence of two or three of the others. In certain circumstances, you will be celebrated uh, for emphasizing two. Uh, but you will be a great offense if you celebrate the other two and vice versa. Um, you will be accused if you focus on a couple, or you, at times, depending on which crowd you're in, as you, even as you focus on all five, but if one is kind of brought to the table, you might be accused of being a woke liberal in that setting because you're talking about the celebration of a multi-ethnic diversity or radical care for the poor and the marginalized. Whereas if you are in another setting where you're talking about um, all life having dignity, and uh, kind of being pro-life or having a kind of, uh, kind of historic Christian uh, sexual ethic, well, you will be often accused of being a bigoted conservative. The reality is, is that in today's political structure, we're often pressed into false dilemmas. What we'll often hear is, right, let's, let's look at this one again. This is the false dilemma. Well, do you care about women or the unborn? Uh, and and you're, you're pressed. You need to choose. Which is it? Do you care about women or do you care about the unborn? And actually, even as I, I, I fleshed out the, the sexual ethic a little bit, I was showing you that actually Christianity itself is what actually brought a lot of dignity and equality to women. Christianity brought that. And we care deeply about women, Right? But th those false dilemmas are often put onto us in the political structures of our day. And this is really, really complicated stuff. For example, as Christians, we are morally obligated to live for Jesus, love our neighbor, make disciples, and seek the welfare of the city. We can pick a political party to vote for and even be involved with, but we can't choose between love and truth. We follow Jesus, who is full of love and truth, full of grace and truth. Like to use another example, we can agree that we are morally obligated to care for the poor, right? You, you cannot look at the Old Testament or the New and not see this, this moral obligation as followers of Jesus to care for the poor among us. And we might even, so we agree on that, and we might even agree that meaningful political engagement could go a long way in alleviating the poverty in our community. The challenge, though, is there are many possible ways to help the poor, 
Should we shrink government and let the markets allocate resources? Or should we expand the government and give them more of the power to redistribute wealth? Or is the right approach one of many possibilities in between? The Bible doesn't give exact answers to these questions for every time, place, culture, and political structure. In fact, most political positions are not matters of biblical command, but of practical wisdom. The Bible commands us to lift up the poor and to defend the rights of the oppressed, but we should be careful not to enforce our personal convictions on the outworking of these biblical imperatives onto fellow believers. And a lot of that is going on today. Our current cultural climate is really one of such polarization of, of such polarization that we, we don't even hear each other, we talk past each other. We put somebody into a category because they would handle something this way or that way, and we um, totally, uh, often in, a, in society, just judge them and press them and hear sound bites and put them into categories. And this is really toxic. Uh, Tim Muehlhoff and Rick Langer in their book, Winsome Conviction, believe the greatest threat to the church today. What do you think it is? Muehlhoff and Langer believe the greatest threat to the church today is the same as it has been in every generation since the New Testament was written. Quarreling. In other words, the greatest threat isn't a threat from outside the church, but inside of it amongst ourselves. Arguments about politics uh, uh, with accusations flying of biblical proportions. You believe that? You would act that way? You'd vote for them? You'd follow kind of this trajectory? And what we're doing is, are you even a Christian? Are you saved? Are you reading the same Bible I am? I cannot believe that you think that. This is the environment in which we are living I've just, I have to remind us, living for Jesus in Babylon, in the kingdom of this world, and trying to place on the, the, the values of the kingdom of God is complicated and nuanced, and we need to remember that. To give you an example of how things are sometimes not so straightforward, I want to tell you the story of Paul Schneider. Paul Schneider is an almost unknown German pastor uh, from the 1930s in Germany. He uh, was the pastor of a small reformed congregation in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. And in 1933, when Adolf Hitler came to power, Schneider's deep convictions immediately brought him into conflict with the Nazi regime because of its dehumanizing practices toward Jews and those with disabilities and so on. He refused, Schneider refused to ring the church bell to signal the beginning of Nazi meetings. He refused to return the Nazi salute on the street. He became affiliated with an organization of churches that opposed Hitler and went through a cycle of arrests and persecutions at the hand of the Nazi leadership. In 1937, he was put into the Buchenwald concentration camp. There was an order that all prisoners in the camp passing by the Nazi flag on their march to work should greet it by taking off their caps. Schneider declared that this saluting of the Nazi flag was idolatry 
and he refused to obey the order. He received repeated heavy tortures, humiliations, and pains. Eventually, he died in the concentration camp one month after his final torture. Well, in 1940, with World War II in full swing, another pastor was sitting in a cafe with his friend. When Nazi officials entered and all around them, people started offering the Hail Hitler salute. To the shock of his friend, the young pastor jumped up, took off his hat, and offered the salute as well. Well, his friend looked in stunned silence. The pastor leaned down to him and said, are you crazy? Raise your arm. We'll have to run risks for many different things, but this silly salute is not one of them. What should we make of that? What should we make of the two very different responses? Was this young pastor a coward, a traitor? Had the pastor gone mad? Right? Paul Schneider refused to offer the Nazi salute since the earliest days of Hitler's rise to power. When questioned by the SS, he ex his explanation was simple. I cannot salute this criminal symbol. The young pastor, on the other hand, simply saluted. No threat or coercion necessary. In fact, he even encouraged his friend to join him in the salute. Now let's take it a step further. Imagine if Schneider's widow had been in the cafe that day and just before the Nazis came into the cafe, her friend nudged her and said, that's the young pastor who's gonna preach in church tomorrow. And then the Nazis roll in and what does she see to her horror? She sees this young pastor hop up, take off his hat and give the Nazi salute, the very things that made her faithful husband a martyr. What would she think? Would she even go to church the next day? Would she listen to a single word the young pastor had to say? Well, this is a true story, and that young pastor was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the most famous German Christian theologian of the, uh, in the midst of World War II. He wrote the book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together, and many others. He, too, actually, would go on to die in a concentration camp for opposing the Nazis all along. Interestingly, Bonhoeffer's family were very influential in Germany, and he was an active conspirator against the Nazis. He didn't want to make an anti-Hitler statement. He had bigger fish to fry as part of the resistance. See, their differences illustrate the spectrum of convictions. Ultimately, a very subtle difference in the way in which Schneider and Bonhoeffer conceived of the lordship of Christ led to a very large difference in their personal guidelines for conduct. Remember, the greatest threat to the church today is the same as it has been in every generation since the New Testament was written, quarreling, quarreling over disputable matters. Daniel, we see in the book of Daniel, was dragged into Babylon. He was given a Babylonian name, Babylonian clothing, Babylonian education. He was even eventually placed into a position in government very high up and yet had unwavering convictions in particular categories. Romans 14 really helps us 
with this in regards to personal convictions and issues of conscience. Romans 14 verse 5 says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This whole passage is really about days and diets. The Sabbath, certain days and what we should do with the Sabbath and diets, um, food offered to idols or particular meats that Jewish Christians would not partake in, but Gentile Christians felt no qualms about partaking in and that each one should be convinced in their own mind is what Paul says. And then he goes on to say not to really um, damage the faith of a brother or sister who lands somewhere differently on these disputable matters, issues of conscience, not to pressure them into your personal convictions. Remember, most political positions are not matters of biblical command, but of practical wisdom and personal conviction. How are we to care for the poor? Well, some of us will take a very different approach in our political engagement in that regard than others. How will we oppose abortion? Some of us will take a very legal approach to that and picket or press political powers. Others, though, will say, who are the most vulnerable girls in my community feeling like they're faced with the decision that abortion is the only option they have, and how can I help them make a different choice? Both are pro-life and have convictions to do so, but they're approaching them in very different ways. I want us to see that it is very complicated to live as followers of Jesus, living and trying to embody and live out and live towards the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdom of man. To live as followers of Jesus and be the church in the midst of Babylon. It is nuanced. It is complicated. We need to strive toward faithfulness, but we also need to give one another a great deal of care, have a great deal of humility. I want us to drill down just a little bit with our remaining minutes here. I just want to give you a few practical applications regarding politics uh, as we close. I'll give you seven. Here's the first. There is no, this is what we've been talking about just now. There is no single Christian policy or political plan. And to act like there is one or to wish that there was one would be to make the old mistake of thinking that the kingdom of God is like, the, like human kingdoms. It's a mistake to suggest that Christians should always come to the same political conclusions. Christians will often disagree about how to apply a biblical principle in the public square. However, however, all Christians should make those decisions from a biblical framework. See, the goal, this goes back to what I said in the intro, the goal isn't to have all Christians share the exact politics, but to have all Christians think Christianly about politics. Second, exercise your right to vote. Canada is a constitutional monarchy and a parliamentary democracy, and it is a privilege to vote in representatives at local and federal levels of government. So engage in the process and be an informed voter and citizen. Third, recognize that Jesus is your king and heaven is your home. This is an issue of, of having a, a huge perspective and an accurate perspective. We should care about the welfare of our city, province, and country, but we should not put ultimate hope in politics and country. For the Christian, the sky is never falling and things are never hopeless, no matter what's happening politically. 
Daniel 2.21 tells us that God removes kings and sets up kings. And no matter who wins or loses in an election, Jesus is still on his throne. And so therefore, we should recognize that Jesus is our king and heaven is our home. Fourth, engagement at a local level is the greatest opportunity to affect change. Picking up on what I just said, think really big, right? Jesus is Lord. I am of a kingdom that will never pass away. No matter what happens here, I'm safe in Jesus. I am saved. But we can also think small, right? Recognizing that while my influence is small on a federal scale, the smaller the context, the more influence for the welfare of the city. So engage and be informed on federal politics, but recognize that your involvement in your own community is the greatest opportunity for maximum impact. Fifth, pray for government leaders. Jeremiah 29, seven, our text says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. In 1 Timothy 2, the apostle Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, don't slander our political leaders. Pray for them and recognize that they've been placed there by God. Six, our public witness is more important than winning a political battle. It's entirely possible to win the battle but lose the war when it comes to political engagement for Christians. I actually believe the church has done a lot of that in our day and age, won some political victories, but sullied the name of Jesus in the process as the church. That's not a win. That's a loss. Politics matter. They're a way in which we can engage in civic life for the common Good, but winning political battles by using sinful tactics or harming our witness, which is our primary calling, is to lose. It's better to lose ground politically, right? You often hear the phrase, we can't lose ground. It is better to lose ground politically than bring dishonor to Christ and his church through sinful attitudes, words, and actions. Seven. Understand that God has placed you here to live for his glory, love your neighbor, and make disciples of Jesus. In other words, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. We're called to live for Jesus in the midst of Babylon and draw people to the gospel and let the transforming work of the gospel in people's lives permeate the culture. And where political engagement helps us do that, praise God. Let me pray for us. Jesus I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for these exiles who sought to live for you in that place. Lord, I pray that we would see our own task that way. Um, And you don't call us to it alone. You call us to be the church in the midst of the city of man. Oh, Jesus, may we live for you. Pray you would give us a lot of wisdom around very complicated issues in our time and place, in our political structure. And Lord, I pray that you would give us heaps and heaps of unity and humility as we strive to live for Jesus together. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen.